We've come to the uh, end of Romans chapter 8, anytime at, at the end of a series, particularly walking through um, something just methodically verse by verse, um, I reflect on what we've been learning and teaching, and this is our 11th and a final message from uh, Romans chapter 8. In a lot of ways, I feel like we should just uh, bump back to chapter 1 and start again. Um, we, we've just scratched the surface, uh, but we're not going to do that. And so what I, what I tell you often at City Church is that God has worked in me um, as I've studied this amazing chapter um, week after week. Uh, Sundays are really just kind of my opportunity to uh, stand and share with you uh, what God's been doing in me as we uh, go through a series together. I just kind of, this is kind of an overflow of what I give you every week of what God's doing in my heart. And uh, Romans 8 has pushed me and challenged me and stretched me and encouraged me and filled me with hope. Um, it's assured me of who he is and who I am in him. And that is the process of how the Word of God does its work. Um, how the Word of God and the Holy Spirit uh, work in conjunction um, within us to grow us. It's why I encourage you regularly to get the Bible in you. Uh, because it's how God does his work. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells us as we've seen again and again in Romans 8. And then the truth of God uh, coming into us as we digest his word week after week. And the goal of getting the Bible in you, whatever that looks like, if it's listening or, or reading or memorizing. You know, some of you uh, undertook the task of memorizing chapter 8 of Romans as we've gone through it. Uh, well, whatever your method is for getting the Bible in you, um, the purpose of that is not just information. The purpose of that is transformation. And transformation happens when the work of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's Word come together inside of you and does its work. It's like turning on the spotlight. Um, I know that there, as we've gone through Romans 8, I've had people tell me, like, I feel like going through Romans 8, my temptation's been at an all-time high. Like, um, I've been faced with things I haven't had to face in a long time. I'm working through. Uh, that's how God does His work, right? It's not easy. It's a, it's a refining process as God conforms us more into His image. So get the Bible in you. That's why we teach from the Bible and preach from the Bible. And Romans chapter 8 is this beautiful and glorious chapter that provides hope and assurance for those who are in Christ. Now, how relevant is that message for today? A message of hope, right, and assurance. We live in times that are the opposite of that. Uh, times that bring uncertainty and doubt and insecurity, and we don't know what's around the corner. So how relevant is Romans 8 written to this group living in the city of Rome uh, by this apostle, um, like this traveling and planting churches and in prison and getting, getting beaten and um, saying things to tick people off? Like how relevant is the message that Paul writes to the Roman Christians for 2021 as we live in these uncertain times, this message of hope and assurance for followers of Jesus. Now, we started this whole chapter with no condemnation. Those who are in Christ are not condemned, and we end this glorious chapter with no separation, that we are not separated from the love of Christ. So just as a recap, we're going to go back and we're going to read the chapter together. So open your Bible if you've got it. Go there. If not, we'll put it up on the Sky Bible for you, or you can always follow along on your app. Um, if you go to the, kind of the, the Sunday guide of the app, uh, there's a place you can click on Bible, and it'll take you right to the Bible app where you can open it up to Romans chapter 8. So um, let's just read through this chapter one more time as we conclude today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing, right? That's that idea of standing on his tiptoes. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth unto now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the, whole, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then last week we launched into Paul's five rhetorical questions in the last part of this chapter. We covered four of them last week. What then, question number one, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. And question number two, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question three, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Question four, who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And then the fifth question that we'll look at today, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am certain, I am sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? So what an incredible chapter. And again, we're going to look at Paul's fifth rhetorical question today. You'll be glad to know I have no more of my own rhetorical questions. You guys just humiliated, humiliated me in such a way last week when I tried to share a few funny rhetorical questions. They obviously were not funny. We're just going to skip that part this week. Uh, but today we're kind of at the top rung of the ladder question. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls uh, this final question the top step of a grand staircase. And that fifth question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now, unlike his previous questions, Paul's not sitting around waiting for an answer. He's not looking around for an answer on this one. For this question, he mentions, first of all, seven possible ad adversities and adversaries. Again, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives us a list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword uh, Paul mentions some categories here. He says trouble, hardship, persecution. These are distresses caused by this broken and hostile world that we live in. That because you live in this world, you're going to face some trouble. You're going to face some hardship. You're going to endure some persecution. That's part of the world that we live in. He also mentions famine and nakedness. This is the idea of a, a lack of adequate uh, food or adequate clothing. This has to do with the basic essentials of life, that there are going to be times in life where you're wrestling with, am I going to have enough or are my needs going to be met, right? We're going to face those hardships. And then he says, uh, or danger or sword. This is the threat or the risk of death. Uh, we know people who die. We've been living in a season where we live with kind of this uncertainty in our minds. Like, are we going to contract something that potentially will lead to my death or severe sickness? Like, we live with this kind of question of peril in our lives. And then he mentions a sword here. Now, sword is literal for Paul. Like, people were dying. They were being, uh, they were being martyred for their faith. Matter of fact, most historians believe Paul would be decapitated. He would be beheaded, that he would face the sword. That's how he would die. And so Paul mentions some very specific, right, threats here. Did you notice that Paul says in this question, who shall separate us? And then he goes on to mention a bunch of what's, right? All these things we just said, troubles, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. These are what's. They're not who's. So why does Paul say who here? Well, a couple of thoughts. Um, a lot of times when you face these things, these perils, they feel like a who, don't they? They feel personal. They feel like an attack against you. They're real. They're painful. They cut deep. They feel personal. As a matter of fact, the Roman Christians are facing these type of trials. In a few short years, the followers of Jesus that Paul is writing to in the city of Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, listen, would be set on fire. They would be set on fire and used as human torches 
to light the roads to Rome just for the sadistic entertainment of Nero, they would die and be burned alive. Feels personal. At the end of the, the chapter 11 of Hebrews, we call it the, the Hall of Faith, where the Hebrew writer mentions all these great um, heroes of the faith. At the end of the chapter, he mentions a list of unnamed believers who were being tortured and jeered and flogged and chained and stoned and sawn in half. Not like a magic show, like, ta-da, sawn in half, now back together, comes out whole. Not that. We're talking literal sawn in half. There's no like big reveal in the end where the person's back together. Like literally cut in two at the end of Hebrews 11. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Hardships are personal. The second reason he probably mentions who here instead of what is that Paul's creating this contrast between the inseparable love of Jesus Christ, a who, and the perils that attempt to threaten our confidence in his love. Paul reminds us that our who, our who, is greater than any who or any what that life may bring our way. And our who, as we've been talking about for weeks, our who is for us. He's on our side. He's in our corner. We are team Jesus. We have Jesus. If you see this uh, Capital One commercial, they have some funny commercials now. There's a Capital One commercial uh, where they're talking about their guarantees and all these things, and it's a little pickup basketball game at the local park, and there's all these like 8, 9, 10-year-old kids that are picking sides uh, to be on their team, and in the crowd that they're picking from is Charles Barkley. Right? He's like, it's like Barkley and then all these little kids around him. And the two captains that are picking the teams, the first captain is like, um, I'm going to take Barkley. And Barkley's like, yes, yes, still got it, right? It's eight or nine-year-old kids, right? And so we are on the team that has Jesus. We are the team with the goat. We have the Charles Barkley of all eternity on our side, right? We're on Jesus' side. It's unfair when Jesus is on your side to everyone else on the opposing team. We are team Jesus. And Paul says, who shall stand against us when we have the who in our lives, right? Paul's point, nothing you face in this lifetime, no matter how difficult, trying, or life-threatening it may be, can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And then Paul throws in this kind of gloomy-sounding song lyric in verse 36, this is from Psalm 44, verse 22, Paul says, As it is written, behold, I am, or as, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, and we're being killed all day long. We're being led as sheep to be slaughtered. Like, how do these, these two things go together? Nothing's going to separate you from the love of Christ. You're a sheep being led to the slaughterer. Like, what's Paul doing here? So Paul employs a very popular 
technique that was used by the Jewish rabbis of his day. Um, it's called a, a remez. The word remez in Hebrew means a hint. He's giving a hint. Uh, what rabbis would do to uh, help their students learn the scriptures is they would quote a verse or a part of a verse so that the students would recall the verses that were both before and after it, right? So they'd give them a quote of a verse, a, a little part of the psalm or a scripture, and they would think about the entire chapter or the entire story. It was a technique that was used to invoke their memory, to invoke their, their recall. Um, think of it in these terms. It's like an actor that's being fed part of their line to recall their entire line. Anyone ever had this happen to them? Like in their school days, maybe you're in a, a middle school or high school play and you've been given lines and nothing comes to mind when it's your turn. And then suddenly some voice from the side screams out the next part of the line. And then you're in real trouble if you can't remember even after you're fed the line, right? So think of it in those terms. We do this a lot with song lyrics. I'm going to illustrate it for you. Be on your game. Lyrics I'm going to give you and you just fill in the missing part. Oh, I want to dance with somebody. I want to. I hear you. It's the eye of the tiger. It's the rocky. A few rocky people out there. Thrill of the fight. Just a small town girl living in a, okay, small town world, lonely world, most lyrics, right? Never going to give you up, never going to. Melissa's on, dude. Melissa's all over it. Small town girl living in a small town world. His palms are sweaty, knees are weak, arms are heavy. <laughs> I see you. I see you. <laughs> All right, there's vomit on the sweater. All right, uh, Psalm 44 is depicting somebody like, what just happened? I have no idea what that song was. Just go ask the few people. I don't know how Van Morrow knows uh, Eminem's song, but go ask him. <laughs> Psalm 44 is a song depicting the suffering of God's people at the hands of their enemies. They're seeking God's help. That's what comes to mind. Psalm 44, God's people being persecuted, suffering. In this particular instance in Psalm 44, they're not suffering because they've forgotten God, which is a lot of Israel's history. They're not suffering because they've turned to other gods. They're suffering because of their loyalty to God. They have been faithful to God, and yet they're suffering. That's Psalm 44. And so they cry out for help. The theologian Calvin says that Paul cites Psalm 44 to show it is no new thing for the Lord to permit His saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. We live in a broken world. And at times it may feel like God has abandoned, forsaken, or forgotten us for no apparent reason. Some of you are living in Psalm 44. You feel deserted. You feel disregarded. You're experiencing pain or misery or hardship, or loss. And you may be questioning whether God even cares about you. Whether God even loves you. Or, if anyone else does. Does anyone care? Is anyone concerned? Does anyone love? Right? Psalm 40, that's Psalm 44. And Paul puts us in Psalm 44 at the end of this chapter to say, Romans 8 is for you. 
It is for me. It is for all of us who follow Christ, but we're living in this in-between time. We are living in the brokenness of the here and now. And at times we will feel like from the adversaries and the adversities, like we are sheep being led to the slaughter. And into this Psalm 44 world, Paul speaks words of hope. What does he say in 37? No, a defiant no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In the face of these calamities, in the face of Psalm 44 moments, in all these things, Paul dares to claim we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he uses intentionally that phrase, more than conquerors. Not only through the love of Christ do we endure what life throws our way, but Paul says we triumph over them. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are more than conquerors because if we back up, God is working all these difficulties in our life for our good and for his purposes. That makes us more than conquerors. Listen to me. God is working that situation in your life for your good and his purposes. He is using that situation to conform you to the image of his son. God is using that circumstance in your life for your good and his purposes. God is using that relationship dynamic, that relationship struggle in your life right now for your good and his purposes. You might feel like you're in the middle of Psalm 44. Does God care? Does God love? Is He even concerned? And God is using that struggle in your life for your good. God is using that temptation. God is using that grief. God is using that difficulty. God is using that sickness. God is using that loss for your good and His purposes. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That word loved is a past tense verb. It takes our attention back to the cross where Jesus proved his love for us by suffering so that our suffering cannot separate us from his redemptive love. Nothing can separate us. The cross guarantees it. He loved us. So you are more than a conqueror. And then in the end, last two verses, Paul takes it just to a whole different level, a whole nother level, right? 38, 39. For I am certain, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am sure, Paul says, I am convinced. Remember how he started Romans 8, 28, that popular verse? We, what was his word there? We know all things work together for good. Here he says, I am sure. 
I am certain that the tense he uses here means that I, I continue to know. I have become convinced. I have become sure. And I continue to be convinced. I continue to be sure that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. And to emphasize his point, Paul lists 10 situations which some might think are powerful enough to separate us from God's love. Or at least to cause us to question it. Man, look at his list here. He says, neither death nor life. That's the shadow of death, the threat of death, or whatever life brings my way, the struggles of life. He says, neither angels nor demons. That's supernatural realm. Nothing in the supernatural realm can separate us from God's love. He says, things that are present are things to come. This is past, present, future. Nothing can separate us in our past, in our present, in our future. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He uses the word powers here. Powers has to do with things that are outside of my control. Nothing outside of my control that gets thrown at me. I have no control over it. I can't help it. It just happens. None of that, none of that that happens outside of my control can separate me from his love. He says neither height nor death. This is time and space. Nothing that is within our time, space, frame of mind, way of living can separate me from God's love. And then he says, and in case I missed anything, in case there's something that did not make the list in your mind, nor can anything else in all creation, this is an all-comprehensive term, a complete inventory. Whatever you want to add to the list, put it on the list. Nothing can separate us from his love. This is so important. Anything else, Paul says, or all things, this complete and comprehensive list. Paul just listed 17 things between the two lists. Anything you want to add beyond the 17, everything that is on these lists, everything beyond the list, what I'm about to say to you is very important. All things, everything on the list, all of these things impact one thing. They impact our circumstances. They impact our life situation. None of them impact who we are in Christ. None of these things on this list impact who you are in Christ. That you are loved by Him. Do you understand what I'm telling you? You are not defined by your circumstances you are not defined by your situation. You are not defined by anything on this list. You are not defined by whatever else you want to add to the list. You are defined. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are defined by who you are. And who you are in this passage is someone who is loved completely and unconditionally by Jesus himself. You are loved, a love so powerful that it turns every circumstance, every hardship, every trial, every mistake, every sin, every failure, every death, every difficulty, every single moment of every single day in all of creation, it turns it into triumph. We are more than 
conquerors. We are gripped and held by the uninterrupted love of God. I love that phrase. We are gripped and held by the uninterrupted love of a God who never blinks and who never bails on us. His love is uninterrupted. Listen to me. Even your badness is no match for his goodness. Even your badness is no match for his grace. We are included in the all things. Add your own name to the list. In all things, we, here's what that means. We can bail on him, but he will never bail on us. We can fail him, but he will never fail us. We can forsake him, but he will never forsake us. We can walk away from him, but he will never walk away from us. We sing it. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It runs after me. And on and on and on and on it goes. Remember this lyric? It overwhelms and satisfies my soul. I never have to be afraid because this one thing remains. And on and on and on and on it goes. In other words, There is nothing you can do to separate yourself from his love. Our weaknesses, our failures, our flaws, our doubts, our sins, our struggles, our temptations, our secrets, our brokenness, they do not and will not jeopardize his love for us. It is impossible if you are a follower of Jesus to be separated from the love of God. Listen to me, City Church. Hear me. He's not giving up on you. He's not walking out on you. He's not cheating on you. He's not walking away from you when things get tough. He's not abandoning you when you let him down. He's not looking or finding someone else. He's not leaving you. His love never fails. There is nothing that you can do to make him love you less. The flip side of that, there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. Rest in his love. He loves you completely and unconditionally all the time. Our confidence, our assurance, our hope, they're not based on our frail, erratic, wavering love for him. Our confidence is in his steadfast, faithful ongoing, never wavering love for us. We're going to sing it in just a moment. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. We can't grasp that kind of love. We can't grasp it because it is so unlike any kind of human love that we will experience or that we will give. It is the love of a God who is love and demonstrated his love for us by sending his own son to rescue us. Paul says back in chapter 5, to rescue us while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God. Let me ask you, how do we respond to this kind of love? How do we respond to this type? 
of love. We stand in awe, don't we? We stand in awe. We worship. We rest in it. We lean into it. We remind ourselves of it. We share it. We display it. And it overwhelms and satisfies our soul. Know who you are. And according to Romans 8, I am in Christ. I am not condemned. I am set free from sin and death. I am walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. I am in the Spirit. I am indwelled by the Spirit. I am alive through the resurrection power of Jesus. I am led by the Spirit. I am a child of God. I am adopted by a heavenly Father. I have been set free from the spirit of slavery and sin. I am an heir of God and a fellow heir with Jesus. I am eagerly awaiting my final adoption. I am filled with hope. I am guaranteed my suffering leads to glory. I am helped in my weakness. I am prayed for and interceded by the Holy Spirit. I am called according to His purposes. I am assured that God is working all things for my good. I am foreknew. I am predestined. I am called. I am justified. I am glorified. I am being conformed to the image of Christ who is interceding on my behalf. God is 100% for me. And if God is for me, who can stand against me? If God is for me, why should I question his gracious and continual provision? If God is for me, who can bring any accusation against me? If God is for me, who can condemn me? If God is for me, who shall separate me from the love of Christ? I am more than a conqueror. I am unconditionally, undeservedly, absolutely loved by the creator God of the universe. He is my heavenly father and nothing can separate me from his love. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. Do you agree with me, City Church? Give him praise. Lift his praise. Lift him praise. Let's lift him praise. Give him praise. And how we sing it, how we display it, how we live it, how we proclaim it. What a God we serve. Know who you are in Christ. It will change and revolutionize everything about who you are. And you are loved. I am loved. And we give him praise.